Hello and welcome back to the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. For our second episode, Matt Lowton has met up with Dr. Sherzad Mumanov, lecturer at the University of East Anglia before lockdown. I am here today with Dr. Sherzad Mumanov. He's a lecturer in Japanese history at the University of East Anglia. He's also a member of the Global and Transnational History Research Group at UEA. Uh, he studied his BA in International Relations at the University of World Economy and Diplomacy in Uzbekistan. He got his MA in International Area Studies from the University of Tsukuba, Japan. And he got his PhD in East Asian Studies from the University of Cambridge, where he was also a postdoctoral research associate in the ERC project, The Dissolution of the Japanese Empire and the Struggle for Legitimacy in Postwar East Asia. Uh, his PhD thesis was on the Siberian internment of 600,000 Japanese servicemen between 1945 and 1956 and was awarded the Murayama Tsuneo Memorial Award for the promotion of research into the Siberian internment. He was a co-editor of The Dismantling of Japan's Empire in East Asia in 2017. He's also the co-editor of Overcoming Empire in Post-Imperial East Asia, which was released this year. And he also has a book manuscript uh, published by Harvard University Press forthcoming next year. Right, okay. Dr. Mumanov, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, the interview today is basically going to be a bit of a wide-ranging uh, deep dive into your academic career so far, your journey through Japanese studies, um, and uh, just a general exploration of what brought you into, into the field, how you got here, why you... Uh, decided to become a Japanese academic and what it is that sort of kept you in the field. Um, so if we just sort of get started, uh, dive right into it, um, could you tell us a little bit about what your academic journey through Japanese studies has been so far? Obviously we've heard uh, an overview of your um, of your CV, uh, but if you could just give us a little information about how you how you first came to, to uh, study uh, Japan and um, uh, and your, your journey through, uh, through academia before you um, entered the field as a, as a working professional academic. Thank you. I would probably not be wrong to say that my, my journey and my entry into the field has been quite unusual. Many young people these days, and again I'm judging from what my students tell me and what I, what I hear from other students at other institutions, a lot of them are interested in Japanese culture, especially anime, manga, and other uh, youth cultures or cultural products. My entry was through the language. So back then, and I'm talking about 2001, nearly 20 years ago, I was a second-year undergraduate at the University of World Economy and Diplomacy, which is a university, but it's also a, a, a specific university which trains career diplomats so the dream was to one day become a diplomat I never once imagined that I would one day become an academic and uh, there was a requirement in your second year to select a second foreign language my first foreign language was English for obvious reasons and uh, there was a choice of languages and I chose Japanese because well you know a lot of decisions like that when you're young they're taken at the spur of the moment but in my case, I thought 
well, why not learn something non-European, something different, something that um, will be very different from the languages that I already speak, Russian, Uzbek and English. And we also had native speaker teachers. That was a good um, good thing, I thought, that these people have traveled thousands of miles. They live here. Uh, many of them were JICA volunteers. And uh, I felt it would be really good to learn from them, from, from the people who speak the language, people who know the culture, people who can tell me more about the country, its culture, its history, the customs of the people. Um, and so it started, but it was very basic. I remember uh, I studied a couple of hours a week. Uh, there were classes a couple of hours a week, and at the end of it, it was all very, very basic. When I, I remember years later in 2008, when I first went to Japan, I wasn't able to use much of what I'd learned because it was at the level of that, that level, that very basic, I'm a student, I, I'd like Japan, that kind of level. And uh, how I, there was, again, the, uh, the reason why I got uh, serious about Japanese, Japanese language, Japanese uh, history, uh, Japanese studies, was because of a master's degree. Because after my first, uh, after finishing my undergraduate degree, I came to England and I did a master's degree at Manchester, which had nothing to do with Japan. It was a, um, a master's degree in international politics. And I went back home and I started working. And I never once again imagined that I would go to Japan or do Japanese studies. Uh, in that respect, it was completely unexpected. It, it was a chance um, encounter with shall I say encounter? It was basically an email that I received one day uh, with a scholarship announcement. And I was very busy at work. And I didn't know whether I should apply. This was uh, a mixed Mombusho, Japanese Ministry of Education scholarship to do a master's degree at the University of Tsukuba in Ibaraki Prefecture. And I was so busy that I skipped it first time. The deadline was January 15. I still remember it really well. And uh, a few days later, there was a another email saying, well, the deadline has been extended to January 31st. Would you like to apply? And uh, I still didn't. On the 31st of January, in the morning, I received another reminder and I, I told myself, I will open this application. If I can do it within one hour, then I will do it. And um, to my surprise, it, it was only five pages. Then, obviously, later on, I realized that that was the first stage, the, ver the very first um, application that you fill in, but I did it and I sent it off. Then I was invited for an interview, which we did over the phone. Uh, long story short, I was accepted to this program and I went to Japan for two years to Tsukuba, which those familiar with Tsukuba will know uh, that it's an idyllic place. It's not very far from Tokyo. You can take a train from Akihabara and if you take the, the fastest one, it will take 45 minutes from Akihabara in Tokyo to Tsukuba. However, it's it's like night and day because in Tsukuba you study among rice paddies. You, it's a very quiet place. It, before the 70s, it was a village. It was nothing but a collection of villages when the Japanese government decided to build um, the so-called science city there, uh, Gakuen Toshi, they call it, Kenkyu Gakuen. And uh, 
along with a lot of research institutions, they moved Tokyo University of Education, which became Tsukuba University. So it's one of the biggest campuses in Japan. It's a lot of space. It's very quiet. And it's ideal for someone who wants to study. I, maybe not so ideal for undergraduates because it probably a bit, is a bit boring. But Tokyo is never far away. So I had、um, my most formative years in, in terms of becoming interested in Japan, deciding to go deeper, deciding to eventually do a PhD.、Uh, learning the language, most importantly, all happened in Tsukuba. Because I already had a master's degree, my studies were, shall I say, not so challenging.、Uh, I had more time. I, I, could, I got all my credits in my first year and I spent the second year just focusing on the language. And、uh, again, one, one thing I would say for me, language has always been really important. And、uh, obviously, a lot of people will. Emphasize different things when it comes to Japanese studies, but for me, language was the, the reason why I one day decided I'm going to apply for a PhD program. I, I'm going to do, I want to do something with, with what I've learned so far. And、uh, after that, I applied to a PhD program which was in history.、Mm-hmm. So、up until that point, I had only been studying international area studies, international politics.、Uh, But my PhD was in history、uh, because I was quite interested in history.、Uh, can I just ask quickly,、um, just for, for the listeners who might not be familiar with it,、uh, what exactly did an MA in international area studies、um, uh, entail? Because I think area studies is one of those things, quite a, quite a,、uh, a big, <laughs>、um, big uh, field, but、uh, one that's maybe not particularly self explanatory just from the, the name. Yes,、uh, it, is, it isn't self explanatory, especially because、uh, different universities interpret this, especially different Japanese universities interpret、uh, area studies in different ways. So,、uh, the program I was accepted to,、uh, the、uh, scholarship program, it had been set up specifically for Central Asian students,、uh, students from the five Central Asian countries. And I assume. Uh, that it was expected that you would study your own area.、Um, however, this was part of a larger area studies、um, department at the university, and I chose not to study Central Asia. And、no. this has been, this was my very conscious decision that I don't want to study Central Asia.、Um, and I was allowed to do that. I was allowed to study Japan. And I wrote my master's dissertation on, on Japanese history. At the time, my language ability was not very good, but I remember enjoying going through Japanese sources. And、uh, the seed was actually planted in Tsukuba、uh, by doing area studies in, 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 on Japan. However, I was within a big Program where a lot of students studied various regions. We had Southeast Asian、uh, students, we had African students. I guess it was this hub for international students who could do research on most often their chosen region.、Yeah. And、uh, I guess the university's goal was to create this program in order to. 
deepen uh, understanding, but also facilitate exchange among various international students. So Tsukuba University was very, it still is a very international place. So what was it then that um, sort of prompted you to decide that you wanted to move away from studying your own region as, as part of this degree and specifically focus on Japan instead? Um, I think uh, I uh, I realized that maybe 95% of all Central Asians who study somewhere, do a PhD, study Central Asia. And it's difficult to explain, but I didn't want to go with the flow. I wanted to be, to do something different. And uh, whilst I, uh, I am interested in my region, uh, I carry a certain baggage of history, a certain knowledge that could have been useful, could have given me a head start, if you like, or an advantage over other people who are doing Central Asia, who are not from Central Asia. Uh, I just felt that there are enough people in the world who are doing Central Asian studies. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> um, also, just to uh, move back slightly, um, you mentioned that you, you worked between your, uh, your undergraduate or your first, first master's first degree master's at, degree at, at Manchester and your second master's degree. Um, uh, would you mind just giving a little, little bit of information sure. about what you were doing and, and what it was uh, the kind of uh, why you had this, made this decision to to take that leap and and uh, apply for the next scholarship? I guess uh, the reason for that wasn't so much to do with the nature of the job, but probably with the setting. So uh, those two years were quite important for me in understanding that I would probably not like to spend the rest of my life in an office. Mm -hmm. it, I, I did enjoy the work, it was creative, so I worked uh, two different UNDP projects, United Nations Development Programme projects. The first one was in the Uzbek parliament, so it was a joint project and it involved working with uh, MPs, you know, um, uh, going through international documentation, a lot of office work like doing emails. Uh, talking to people, going to meetings, sometimes uh, interpreting. Uh, and my second project, also within UNDP, um, was working for a research institute, so Center for Economic Research, where I did part research, part PR style job. Uh, both jobs were quite enjoyable. They enabled me to meet a lot of people. They enabled me to be creative. I also wrote a column for the journal uh, that was published by the Research Institute at the time. However, it involved, uh, I guess, what I wanted at the time, and I, I think that was the choice that I made very consciously also, was I would like to do research to also uh, teach. I think uh, one thing that I couldn't do as at that job was teaching. and. I had taught uh, briefly before that. I had uh, taught at Westminster International University in Tashkent. Um, and I just enjoyed teaching more than I enjoyed sitting in an <laughs> office, I guess. so. Uh, and I realized at that point that probably becoming an academic would be the only job, I can't think of any other job, in which you can both write and teach. Yeah. Um, on a regular basis and I can't think of any other job that 
combines such uh, unsimilar activities because writing is a very lonely activity. You have to sit on your own and you have to be with your own thoughts, trying to express yourself. Whereas teaching is, is the complete opposite. You're among people and you are trying to express yourself, but also learn from everybody else, from the students, and students also learn from each other. And there is no other job that I can think of, as I say, that enables you to, to do those two things mm -hmm. in one day. Yeah. And did you see yourself as a teacher before you had that experience of, uh, of teaching um, at the uh, Westminster International University? Because um, certainly, uh, to speak from my own experience, um, you know, I'm, I'm coming to the end of, of my training as an academic at this point, and uh, certainly when I got in onto the journey, I saw, uh, uh, I, I very much um, appreciated the, the writing and research side of, of academia, and that was, that was a big part of why I wanted to, to try and get into, um, uh, into an academic career. Um, but I certainly always sort of, teaching is just sort of, uh, something I didn't think I would necessarily enjoy, but would obviously necessarily have to do as an academic. Um, but I found that uh, by teaching tutorials and getting involved in the teaching side of things as I've done my PhD, I've come to realize that I actually enjoy the teaching side, um, uh, you know, almost as much as the as the writing and research side of, of academia. It's, um, how did you find it yourself? Were you always, did you always think um, you would enjoy teaching or is it something that you sort of discovered that you enjoyed as, as you went along and, and therefore made uh, the uh, prospect of a career as an academic more appealing? I think I discovered it. Uh, when I returned home from England, from Manchester, uh, I looked for jobs and there was one very brief, I think it was uh, maternity cover, if I remember it correctly, for a few months only. Uh, teaching position seminar or tutorial teaching position uh, at that university and I I took that I applied for that position because I thought well I could do it I've just got a master's degree from a UK university so this is a UK university which is uh, in my country uh, and I was given a group of first-year students so um, obviously I was quite nervous initially but as we as we went along and as we delved into the discussions and I, I just I just realized that it's 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 something that I want to do um, after that one semester I went and worked for the UNDP but I guess that was also quite uh, quite an important experience in in the sense that when I was in Scuba and I was also doing uh, working as a teaching assistant at Scuba that made uh, the decision to do a PhD to become an academic uh, a lot easier. Okay, and so then to uh, maybe jump back to where we were, um, you're doing your MA at SCUBA. Yes. Um, uh, did you uh, apply to do your PhD whilst you were still doing your MA, or did you get to the end of your MA, sort of look at your options uh, and think, uh, right, okay, PhD, uh, that that makes sense for me as, as the next step, that's what I'll apply to do. Uh, I think, uh, yes. In, into the second year of my master's degree, I realized, and uh, I had some very good teachers who helped me with that. I had Professor Harold Kleinschmidt, uh, who was teaching the history of international relations at Scuba at the time. Um, he's now emeritus. Uh, he, we had many conversations, and he was very instrumental in my decision 
of choosing um, the PhD topic, uh, of choosing the field, if you like, because uh, he said you should choose a topic where you could use your linguistic abilities. Uh, and he said you should do something on Soviet Union and Japan. And he's a historian, so he provided me, if you like, with a, with a historical outlook uh, on the PhD. And up until that point, I had been very international relations person. Uh, my, my master's uh, degree at Manchester was very theoretical. Looking back, I realized that obviously at the time I thought, well, this is how it's supposed to be. And I had very good teachers there and I had read all my theory at the time. Uh, so history was quite refreshing. It was quite um, something that I never imagined again that I would be doing. But once I started doing, I, I, I enjoyed really. Uh, and uh, and I started applying for PhD programs. Several I got several offers from international universities all over the world, from the US. Uh, I, I, I didn't get funding for many, from many of them and uh, the reason why I ended up at Cambridge is mainly because of funding because you can't choose, um, if you don't have a, a scholarship or a stipend, it's very difficult to, it's a long commitment, especially I also had a, had a, had a family at the time and uh, no children at the time but I, uh, I had a partner, I had a, my wife, I was married. So. Uh, PhD is, as you know, is a, is a very uh, long time commitment during which you earning money is not very easy. You have to rely on scholarship. So I was lucky. I think in the in the second year of my PhD, of my uh, master's degree at Scuba, I applied for uh, several programs and I was given uh, the opportunity to go to Cambridge uh, on a three year uh, scholarship. And that's how I ended up at Cambridge. So uh, is that the approach that you took when you were applying for your PhD then? First and foremost, uh, who is going to be able to actually uh, provide the financing for me to be able to yes. actually complete this degree rather than yes. there was one particular university that you had your heart set on that you, that you wanted to go to? Um, <clears throat> well, I obviously, uh, even universities which provide scholarship you have to look for the university you have to look and as they say you when you're applying for a PhD you're not choosing a university you're choosing a supervisor and uh, in that sense I applied to four or five universities where I would be very happy to work where there were people who could support me in on my journey could help me could whose research interests and writings uh, were also interesting for me um, and obviously not all of those universities will provide you with with funding or sometimes they will give you an offer but they won't give you funding uh, in my case Cambridge was I was very lucky because Professor Barack Kushner who was my supervisor at Cambridge um, I liked his research before I, I met him and he was also quite um, interested in my proposal and I received a scholarship from a completely different organization which was offering scholarships for uh, Cambridge uh, University so everything somehow worked out in my second year and uh, I guess 
there was of course an element of luck um, and I, I still feel that had I not had that scholarship I would never be able to, to finish my PhD and probably would be doing something else and in a way this is uh, my gratitude for for all the scholarships that I've received for all the donors for all the organizations that are happy to support studies happy to support people who are interested in uh, embarking on long-term research degrees for all the donors who understand how important research is and are willing to support that research mm-hmm. so for the uh, the younger academics thinking about going on to postgraduate study who might be listening um, do you have any sort of a, a advice on on uh, that side of things on funding how um, how did you go about finding these these pots of money and um, uh, you know how 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 many applications did you have to send out how many uh, different routes did you have to go down before you uh, kind of uh, were lucky enough to to find a body that was willing to fund your your research and your PhD program so it I, I'm not sure if things have changed because this was when I started my PhD um, it's almost 10 years now uh, 10 years ago now so in 2010 we used to go to some specific websites uh, I think they were called scholarshipinfo.net something like that I don't know if they still exist but also uh, most important was uh, you sign up for some newsletters and you receive emails uh, about these um, scholarships. I think these days we use HNET, all of us, but HNET is more for professionals, uh, where you find, for example, call for papers um, or event announcements. There must be some kind of a... I'm sure the, the, the postgraduate students will know that better than me. Um, I guess those of the students who are interested in Japan will know that there are government scholarships which are very prestigious and which are still generous. They used to be a lot more. I think they, the, the, the funding has been coming down, unfortunately. But uh, I think the, 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 the variety of scholarships that Japanese organizations, both state organizations and private uh, foundations uh, offer is absolutely essential for the development of Japanese studies and for the popularization of Japanese studies abroad. And um, I have greatly benefited from from all that. And uh, I would recommend that postgraduate students do their research uh, and they will find something. I'm sure there is something for everyone. Uh, So it's 2010. You've arrived at Cambridge, you're just starting your PhD. Uh, we heard in the intro that your PhD was on the Siberian internment of uh, Japanese servicemen in the wake of the Second World War. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about that topic and also uh, how you came to decide upon that topic? Did you go into your PhD um, with the idea sort of uh, really fully formed? Is, is, is the uh, idea that you proposed um, when you were applying for your PhD, effectively what you ended up um, doing uh, by the end, uh, is, is that what um, you eventually produced or did it go through a great deal of change over the course of the PhD? I think, Matt, you know that it very rarely happens that you come with an idea and then you end up with the same idea. You, you finish with the same idea. In my case, my proposal was very general. I, I was looking at war memories and that's what I wrote I wrote my master's degree 
um, master's dissertation at, at Scuba about the memory of the Unit 731 in um, basically Japan's biological warfare uh, and human experiments program in northeast China. And uh, I was very intrigued by the memory of the war and the, the, the topic that I wanted to explore quite in some detail was how Japan and Soviet Union remember the war. Maybe not, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do something comparative, but I wanted to make use of the linguistic abilities, maybe to work in the Soviet archives, which I ended up doing, but on a different topic. And uh, obviously the topic that I ended up doing, I was aware of that topic. That was one of the issues that I had um, read about. However, uh, how I ended up deciding to go deep into that topic was when I read more deeply in my in the first few months of my PhD when I read more broadly and deeply into the Anglophone scholarship on, on, on Japan and the Soviet Union and I was just absolutely amazed how almost everything produced in English in the last at the time in the last 50 60 years was I wouldn't say obsessed but preoccupied with one issue and that issue was the Northern Territories issue, the territorial dispute issue. And you can understand why that, that issue is so important. It's still unresolved. It is one issue that you could probably say worries Japanese people most when they think about Russia these days. Uh, however, I just felt at the time, uh, and I had a lot of discussions with my supervisor, that one issue can't be so important to dominate one subfield, if you like, or the whole history of bilateral relations. And I, in, in, in conversations with Professor, Professor Kushner, I decided um, with his advice that why not look into alternative stories, alternative histories? Why not analyze something that for some reason has been in the shadows and why not use the material that's there both in Japanese and in English and in Russian and maybe obviously I wasn't conscious of this I didn't think I was doing this at the time but uh, probably the urge was I want to find out why one issue is dominating everything so much I, I want to find something that is different I don't want to go with the flow again. And uh, in a way, I found that, to my astonishment, I found that there was so much in the two respective languages, in Japanese and Russian, on this topic. Um, but English was still lagging behind. Uh, the only article I remember reading, which was quite, quite good and very inspiring, on the topic, in 2012, I think I read it, or uh, 2011, uh, by Professor Andrew Barshay, who wrote uh, a paper about Takasugi Ichiro, one of these Japanese captives in the Soviet Union, who ended up being a very famous writer who wrote probably the most popular memoir of Siberian captivity, about whom I also ended up writing a lot in my book, and um, I will also present today at, at Edinburgh. Uh, and that article was perhaps one of very rare research pieces 
done in English on this topic. And uh, Professor Barge then, of course, wrote a book, and that article became one of its chapters. Uh, but apart from his work, for many years there was nothing on this topic. And I felt that not only because as researchers we have to be practical and we have to find a gap and try and fill it, but also the, the more I studied this topic, the more I felt that this is, top, this is a topic that deserves mm -hmm. telling. This is a topic that has importance and impl implications for a lot more than just the group of people who were involved, that this topic is not simply a chapter in Japanese history, that it is a chapter in global history, that or transnational history, if you like, that can serve as as a case, if you like, a case that opens windows, opens doors on so many other processes, for example, Japanese Empire, the Second World War, the Cold War, um, and other aspects. So could you give us an overview then of what the Siberian internment was? Um, sort of a historical overview and, and what you specifically looked at um, in your PhD. Yes, uh, so the Siberian internment was the captivity of over 600,000 um, and we still don't have the exact numbers because Soviet archives contradict each other in, in many cases. But I guess the consensus is that the number of Japanese was anywhere between 575,000 and 640,000. So I usually use over 600,000 Japanese. Um, majority of them were servicemen. A, a large majority of the servicemen were conscripts. So there were a few um, officers, a few thousand officers, but they were not. Uh, they were they were clearly in the minority. And uh, so how these people ended up in the Soviet Union? As you know, Soviet Union enters the war against Japan on the 8th of August, uh, Moscow time, 9th of August, Tokyo time, in 1945, uh, three armies basically encircle what was then Manchukuo, the puppet, puppet kingdom uh, of Manchukuo in the three northeast provinces of China. <clears throat> and uh, it was a blitzkrieg. It was uh, a very quick war in which the Soviet Red Army absolutely shocked uh, the Japanese Kwantung army, which retreated quickly, leaving a lot of Japanese settlers, a lot of civilians um, unprotected. And it was a very quick victory for the Soviet Union. Um, and after surrender, after the, uh, the Japanese emperor announced that Japan was, had accepted the terms of the Potsdam Declaration, and after majority of, of the Japanese uh, soldiers had laid arms. Um, in, in a week's time after that, on, on August 23, uh, on completely unexpectedly, even for the Soviet officers, on the ground, Joseph Stalin uh, sends a secret order to, in which he orders to select 500,000 Japanese who are fit to work in the conditions of the Far East and Siberia and to transport them into the US, USSR. Um, that decision in itself, we don't have the full evidence. We cannot fully explain why Stalin made that U-turn, because on August 16, there was a telegram from Beria, who was Stalin's right-hand man at the time, uh, which said, we are, we are not going to 
take any prisoners to the Soviet Union. So there must have been some kind of change. And uh, my contention is that that change came because of disagreements between Truman and Stalin. Truman uh, rejected Stalin's request to land troops on the northernmost island of Hokkaido. Um, and while we can't say with confidence that's why Stalin decides to take um, half a million prisoners to the Soviet Union, it, it, it's very likely that that was one of the major reasons. And uh, these people, the, the Japanese, uh, they end up in over 2,000 camp units across the Soviet Union. The word Siberia is used very often. And one of the things I, was, I found very interesting initially that Siberia in Japanese, Siberia, kind of became a synecdoche for the Soviet Union. When, even when talking about Mongolia, because there were Japanese who were <coughs> interned in Mongolian uh, People's Republic, um, even they called themselves Siberia Krusha. So Siberia is a very broad term. It can be geographically, it's, it's very broad, anything to the east of the Ural Mountains. Uh, in Russia, administratively, Siberia is a lot less um, broad than what we think about it, because there's also the Far East. Uh, but in, in the eyes of the people who were interred there, uh, detained there, Siberia often means the Soviet Union. And uh, that's one thing that I found very interesting. And they were everywhere. They were beyond the polar circle in the far north, in places like Narilsk. Uh, of Varkuta, they were in the south, in Uzbekistan, where I come from, there were Japanese in Ukraine, in the far west. Uh, but the majority obviously were concentrated in the eastern regions, in, in what we call Siberia, because uh, that region historically had been uh, where a lot of forced labor was uh, moved by the Soviet government in order to develop those regions, in order to um, to uh, access the, the, the abundant natural resources, as you know. And uh, uh, the Japanese were, and this is what I call, this is what I say in my book, they were an afterthought for the, for the, for the Soviet government. Why? The reason, uh, the reason was uh, uh, they came, they were the last group to arrive at the, uh, in the camp system. By the time they arrived, they were over, uh, nearly two million Axis prisoners of war in the Soviet Union already. And they were the ones who arrived after the war ended, after all the hostilities ended. So while the Japanese, uh, while the Germans, for example, or Austrians or Romanians or Hungarians or Italians or Finns uh, or Bulgarians, many other Axis army, soldiers of the Axis armies and their allies had been imprisoned after battles and they had been in the Soviet Union while the uh, Second World War raged on, the Japanese arrived when there was no war. Uh, and that makes them quite different. And the treatment that they received was also slightly more different from the Axis prisoners, because if, if you look at it, there wasn't very strong enmity towards the Japanese, at least compared to the Germans, who were the, the real enemy, who were seen as the as the you know the soviet propaganda would dehumanize the german and uh, very famously Ilya Ehrenburg this famous soviet jewish uh, poet and writer 
came up with a with a with a call, kill the German. And it was not something that was unusual. It was not something that people found unsavory at the time. Whereas the Japanese were, okay, who are these people? They hadn't even invaded the Soviet territory. The Japanese were, all the battles that were against the Japanese, they happened outside the Soviet Union in, in what is now China. So that reflected their place, if you like, in that hierarchy of detainees or prisoners in, in the vast camp system. Um, and if I, if I may summarize this very briefly, the foreign POWs, even the enemy soldiers, even the Germans, uh, on the whole, overall, were treated better than Soviet inmates in the Gulag proper. Um, so I'm, I'm saying this only to maybe dispel the myth that it's often said, oh, the Germans and the Japanese were in the Gulag, which is technically true if you're using uh, the small G Gulag as as a labor camp, yes, that they were in labor camp. Uh, however, they, their, the system that looked after foreign POWs was a different directorate of the NKVD. So while whilst it was built in the image and using the experience of the Gulag, it was a completely different uh, directorate with different <coughs> goals and different uh, purpose. One of those purposes was to try and use foreign captives who will eventually be returned to their motherlands in the coming Cold War. And how do you use them? One aspect that made these foreign POWs very different and their treatment, if you like, influenced also their treatment, um, was that they underwent very rigorous and quite effective, praised by the American um, uh, occupation, for example, at the time, in the reports, uh, quite effective propaganda education program uh, that used both met methods of both carrot and stick uh, in instilling both the theoretical part, the Marxism and Leninism, and why it's important to fight American imperialism, why it's important for the Japanese to turn Japan into a workers' paradise. And on the other hand, by very practically driving the wedge between various classes by emphasizing the class differences between the officers and the conscripts and by singling out the so-called reactionaries, people who were standing on the road to progress, on the road to freedom, uh, obviously in uh, communist terms at the time. So um, it wasn't as effective as it seemed initially because many of the Japanese who came came back to Japan, who were allowed to return to Japan in the later years, in between 1948 and 1949, especially 1949, which was called the year of recalcitrant repatriates by the American authorities. Many of them displayed uh, militant behavior when they landed in Maizuru, which is a, a port, repatriation port in north of Kyoto. Um, many of them refused to cooperate with the authorities. They uh, sang the Communist International and other communist songs. Many of them refused to disembark and the authorities had to use various persuading tactics. Um, and when they actually disembarked, many of them marched straight into the Communist Party cells, ignoring uh, 
their families. The, the, the mother who had waited by the wharf, you know, the, this very classic Japanese image of Gampeki no Haha, the, the mother who awaits very um, patiently for his son's return from Siberia. So uh, it was a very momentous occasion uh, in, in Japanese history of the first post-war decade. Um, it was a Cold War story because, ironically, in 1949 was also the year that the Cold War intensifies in East Asia with the founding of the PRC, uh, with the um, Soviet uh, success, successful testing of the first Soviet atomic bomb. And it, the people who are coming back from Siberia, uh, especially the ones who have taken to Soviet schooling, if you like, not all of them were, although the media was very happy to call them an invasion. Uh, these people are coming back. They are not Japanese. They are, they are already Soviet. They will become food soldiers of the revolution, which, of course, the Japan Communist Party was um, also fanning the flames off at the time with, with its militant leader, Tokuda Kyuichi. So all of these events, they coincided to create this air of suspicion to create this um, mistrust of the former soldier who is coming back uh, added to his misery as a POW and as you know in Japanese uh, military culture in, during the Second World War uh, being a POW falling alive into enemy hands was a shameful thing and these people had uh, been imprisoned although at the time they were the emperor himself uh, issued a statement in August 1945 urging them to surrender and telling, promising them that I will not see you as prisoners of war because a lot of people were not laying arms in fear or trying to avoid the shame of becoming prisoners of war. Um, so whether they were prisoners of war or internees, and this is a debate that is still going on, um, it's a legal debate which will not be resolved until uh, historians and legal experts on both sides in Russia and Japan meet and agree on, on, on the issue. Um, they were, I call, embodiments of the empire because some of them were still wearing their uh, Imperial Japanese Army uniforms when they landed in Maizuru. Many of them didn't have to wear uniforms because they had left Japan when it was still Japanese Empire. They had no idea how Japan would be when they returned. Uh, on top of that, the, the Soviet propaganda, the Nihon Shimbun, Japan newspaper, Japanese language propaganda newspaper published by the camp authorities, edited by an editorial team which was selected from the left-leaning POWs themselves. That was misleading them claiming that Japan is on the verge of collapse, the economy isn't doing well, people are selling, selling their children to buy rice. So when these people come back home, they are, they are it's as if they are traveling through not only space but also time. They come back from the empire and that's how they are received in a, in a Japan that is eager to leave the empire behind. So you've completed this fascinating research. Uh, you've submitted your thesis. Uh, you've passed. You are now Dr. Mumanov. How do you then transition from this, uh, from completing this final stage of your academic training into uh, a career in Japanese studies? So, 
as you know, um, many of our colleagues, after doing the PhD, they trans transition into uh, a postdoctoral uh, period of postdoctoral research, which uh, is often the period in which they write up a lot of their research, that tr they try to publish some of it in the forms of articles and book chapters, and they also look for jobs. Uh, there's no shame in admitting it, uh, postdocs are for that. Um, and I was lucky to be uh, involved in a, in a European Research Council research project led by Professor Kushner at Cambridge as a postdoctoral research associate. I also gained very uh, important and very interesting experience working with students. So I also did, um, I, I, I taught some lectures uh, on Japanese history, but I also uh, conducted supervisions, what they call at Cambridge, one, one hour, one-to-one -one, uh, tutorials. And uh, during that period, I looked for academic positions, and there was one not too far from, from Cambridge uh, at the University of East Anglia, and I applied and I was uh, offered the position. So uh, it was a uh, in 2017, after two years as a postdoc uh, at Cambridge. So, um, as you know, our field, and also not just our field, the academic world, revolves around um, what is available. We cannot go to a university or contact a university and say, will you be interested in the services of a Japanese historian? We have to go with what's out there and at that stage we don't have much choice uh, if there is a job somewhere that is far away then and if that's job that's the job that uh, you like and more, more importantly they like you it's it's very likely that as PhD students we end up many thousand miles away from where we did our PhDs in my case I was lucky my transition from um, from postdoc to, to position at the UEA was was very smooth and easy one. I didn't even travel that long. And uh, the community at the UEA, uh, the research community, is very supportive. It's very diverse. Um, it's also slightly different for me because at Cambridge I was a PhD student at the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies, which is, as, as we've already talked, it's an area studies faculty. Whereas at the UEA, I am at the School of History. So I am surrounded by historians who work on various uh, regions, various periods. Um, I have a colleague who is also teaching uh, Japanese history. So we, there are two Japanese historians in our school, but there are obviously a lot of other regions and countries that we uh, research and teach. So um, it is a very vibrant environment, and, and I, I really like to be part of that. And have you found um, moving between uh, schools and uh, fields and departments, um, has that been a challenge at all? Have you, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think what the, 
best way of putting this. So in our in our first episode that we recorded with Dr. Jennifer Coates, I believe you've yes. uh, obviously worked with as well. My former colleague. Um, yes, your former colleague, uh, Dr. Jennifer Coates. Um, she has also moved between different fields and departments during the course of her career. And um, she said, you know, there, she found that, that moving from one to another, you would find quite different um, environments and different approaches and different ways of thinking about research and academia. And have you found that to be um, the case in your experience? Um, has it been challenging moving between uh, fields and, and departments in, in different universities in different uh, different countries, um, especially considering you've worked in, in, in so many different countries, um, in so many different institutions? Has that been challenging at all? Have you? Obviously, there are challenges involved. Um, I guess if you mention any of those transitions, each of them will have its own uh, difficulty involved, for example, moving between countries. Another thing uh, is each country, but, but not just each country, I guess each field and each institution has its own learning and teaching culture, has its own research culture. And uh, I remember as a teaching assistant at Scuba, uh, I was, one experience I will never forget, uh, I was teaching assistant to a professor who uh, was away for one lecture and he asked me, can you please step in? And it was an international communications class, so the job was to discuss one current event in English. Um, and I did my best. Uh, I prepared a presentation, PowerPoint presentation. I selected several videos that would make it easier for the students to get into the topic and to um, keep their attention. And it all went well. My presentation went well. The videos were, were uh, well received. Uh, not everybody was sleeping at least. Uh, as you know, it's very common for students in Japan to just, not everyone, not, not in every university probably, but there will always be a few, a few students who will just fall asleep during the class. And when at the end of that, I just asked the first question, it was a class of 80. Silence. And in the next 20 minutes, I stood there, perhaps my, the loneliest I've ever felt, and uh, that was my introduction into, uh, into teaching at a Japanese university. This is not to say that it was a bad thing, but if you're not familiar with, with the way that students interact with their, with their teachers in Japan, if you're not familiar with the learning culture there, then at the time I wasn't, I, I had just arrived in Japan, it was only a couple of months that I was uh, a master's student, there will be challenges. Uh, but I guess uh, those challenges will then turn into lessons and you, you, you grow and you develop as you, as the more challenges you face and find ways to negotiate, then I guess at some point they will stop seeming uh, as something difficult. They will they will become something that um, you will probably not seek uh, consciously, but if you're faced with you, you can deal with it. And uh, I think, on the whole, it, it it's it's such an enriching uh, thing to move between cultures and to move between institutions, to move between learning cultures and teaching cultures, to try different methods. And uh, perhaps the, the, the question that you started, 
the, the part of your question that, that you started the, the, uh, inquiring. Um, my transition from Cambridge to the UEA was perhaps the easiest of all because, uh, yes, there is a difference between um, <coughs> between faculties. So at Cambridge I was in an area studies faculty, but what I was doing was still history. So my supervisor is a historian, my former supervisor, and uh, that transition perhaps culturally quite different even within uh, a few a few miles uh, from each other obviously UEA and Cambridge are quite different institutions but um, on the whole we become more used to change and I think uh, we embrace change and that's why I think it's so important to move institutions for example one of the uh, major uh, funding bodies in this country uh, one of the eligibility criteria is that you have to have you must have uh, moved institutions in order to be eligible for that uh, fellowship and I think it's a very important thing because uh, the more you move the more you learn it's I don't know which metaphor to use the, the more hats the more feathers you have in your hat the more uh, f uh, facets you have to your approach to work, to study, to research, to teaching. And uh, I found that in incredibly rewarding, all of those movements. At some point, obviously, when you are a PhD student, especially, you want to settle down and moving and especially if you have a family. And as a PhD student in the first year, my, my son was born uh, a few months before I started my PhD program, my, my elder son. He's now nine. And uh, it's not easy. However, I guess it, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it as, as a lesson, as a positive experience, I guess it all adds up to making you a better person or a better professional. Probably not a person, but a, I'm not sure about the person's, person's <laughs> person side, but better um, suited to do your job in a way. But certainly it's an experience that you, uh, it was a net positive experience. You know, obviously there's a great deal of challenges from, from moving countries so many times and going to these different institutions. But, um, but you would say that it's certainly overall a, a journey you're glad you've uh, Absolutely. You've I would, yeah, I would encourage um, anyone, any student, especially, I guess the audience of, of this podcast will, will have moved because it's about Japan. So... Uh, I, I would probably think that they will want to go to Japan or have already been to Japan and spent some time there. Uh, so they will, they will see how that changes you, uh, how that changes the experience of traveling, the experience of finding yourself in a completely new environment, completely lost, completely lonely. Initially it might feel lonely, it might feel difficult, it might even feel overwhelming. but. As you look back, you realize how precious that experience was. So if we can broaden it out um, a little bit uh, for, the, for the end of this podcast, um, what do you see then as, as the main benefits of doing a Japanese studies degree? If, um, if you ha were doing an open day, say, and a student came up to you and they were kind of on the fence and they would think about maybe doing Japanese studies or maybe doing a, a different field. You know, when I applied to university, uh, the first time around I applied for film studies. Uh, and I changed my mind at the last minute and I ended up doing Japanese studies. If somebody came up to you and they were thinking about doing uh, two completely different degrees and they, 
they couldn't decide between the two, what would you say to them to try and convince them to do a Japanese studies degree? Why do you feel that a Japanese studies degree is, is worth pursuing? Uh, okay, well, in your case, I would have told you, why don't you do Japanese cinema? That, that would have solved your problem. <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe if I, if, I, if I try to say it as briefly as possible, I would say embrace the difference. And it, it probably sounds a little bit uh, cheesy, maybe it's, it sounds a little bit even essentialist, and I'm not, I don't mean this in an essentialist sense that it's such a different culture. Uh, but, I, but I think uh, going the Japanese studies path, taking the Japanese studies path will, uh, will help you uncover certain things in yourself that you didn't realize that you had. And, and that's why, that's the reason why I think embrace the difference because uh, it's perhaps the, the, the safest way to get out of, of your comfort zone because Japan is a very safe country. But you will still be out of your comfort zone when you're first in Japan. I would say if you're a young person trying to find a degree to do, I would sell Japanese studies degree as something that will change your life. It sounds very, very, uh, you know, it sounds very high. It's high-sounding rhetoric on my part, but I think, uh, and you know this because you're in Japanese studies, you're nodding. Uh, I can, yeah, yeah. I, I completely because, agree, absolutely. Because, uh, and each person will have a different experience. Each person will come out of it with, with various experiences. But I guess if you want to change your life, uh, if you want to have a, a different perspective on things and if you want to experience things that you will probably never experience if you stay where you are, uh, this is probably too broad to say. But, uh, but I would say it's the safest and the most exciting way to immerse yourself in something that you'd never experienced before. Uh, although a lot of things will be familiar, student culture, for example, is the same everywhere. People in general uh, will treat you, you know, in a, in a, in a, um, as a student when you are a student. Like what I mean is, student lifestyle is has similarities across cultures. Um, however, being a student in Japan or being a student of Japan gives you that extra. Uh, of going to an amazing country which has an amazing nature, which has amazing scenery, which has a very specific uh, scenery, which is, um, when I look back, I, I, this is probably the only country where you will find beautiful gardens next to some something made of concrete, or probably the, the, the one country where you can take a bullet train and then go to um, a mountain resort which looks just like it did uh, 200, 300 years ago. Um, so for me, Japan is, is, is this, this massive place, uh, uh, the, the place where you have a lot of contrasty things, a lot of contrast that somehow live together. Uh, and it's the best way to experience all of that on one 
manageably sized country, uh, which is very safe, which is very welcoming, which is, especially if you learn the language and you show the respect and show the interest, uh, it is a very open and welcoming country for someone who wants to learn more. It's a country that, uh, I mentioned scholarships, for example, that uh, supports people who are interested in Japan in, in, in various ways, but it's also a very friendly, very uh, safe uh, society. So, I don't know if I've managed to persuade the, the undergraduate, but uh, probably I'm just rambling too much. But uh, uh, that's what Japan is for me. That's what uh, I would have told my undergraduate self. Mm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think exactly the same. Um, and I don't think it's too overblown at all to say that it's it's life-changing, really, if I, if I look back on... Um, on that decision to to go and do Japanese studies when I was 19 that I think it is the most life-changing decision I've certainly ever made and um, I would imagine I'd be a very different person without that so I think you're, you're probably absolutely spot on with that um, and then to um, pick up on what you were just saying then uh, uh, what advice would you then give to your your first year self obviously you didn't start off in Japanese studies you did have a very different um, uh, path through uh, uh, through your academic training, um, but in a more general sense, mm. um, as an undergraduate student, yeah, what advice would you go back and give your first year self um, in terms of um, uh, how to best repay yourself for this this academic journey you've you've been on? I would have emphasized two things. First, languages, and in this case, we're talking about Japanese language. Um, immerse yourself in the language, and Japanese language, as you know, is will require more from you and I like to say Japanese language is uh, will require you to go either all in and devote yourself and and be ready to to spend hours and hours or you better not get in because you can't half learn Japanese you know you can't it's very difficult for how how do we judge language ability can you order something at a restaurant in that language for example um, and in Japanese you could probably be able to do that but it will require you a lot more effort to do that than for example to do it in Spanish or in even in Russian uh, so uh, if you really feel that you will enjoy Japanese I would say immerse yourself in it uh, and it there will be really really big benefits that you will probably not anticipate it because the language is difficult but it's also really rewarding the uh, and having that language will give you if we think in practical terms will give you the edge in this very difficult market wherever you go whatever you want to do if you want to be an academic that will give you a completely new world of resources and I'm obviously talking from the historians perspective here but I guess that works in, in, in every field. Uh, if you want to go into the industry or if you want to work in the banking system, if you want to work in the culture industry, whatever you want to, to do, the, if you know the language very well, if you're comfortable uh, with the original uh, language material, then that will give you the edge, but it will also reward you in so many ways. Personally, you will feel uh, that you've, you will have a a sense of accomplishment you will have a sense of um, 
having a window, having access to something that a lot, a lot of people don't. I remember going into a book off, uh, and you know what book off is basically the uh, uh, used bookshop, uh, and uh, each book off in every little uh, village will have. A 105 at the time it was 105 now it's 110 105 yen shelves and there were thousands and thousands bunko uh, pocket format pocket sized books and uh, that was there was not a book in english in that scuba uh, book off and i just thought i'm surrounded by thousands of books and i can't read one of them and that was that was when you not you don't think you feel that you need to do something about it. And that's how I decided to devote a lot of time to, to the language. So my first advice is, if you are serious about Japanese, start with the language. Anime and manga and history and culture and cinema, everything else will come later. Put in the hours and do the language and you will thank yourself for, for those hours that you've, you've put in. And the second thing I would recommend even if you are not going to be a researcher find your thing and enjoy it and find your thing i mean by that i mean find something that makes you really um, excited inspires you about japan and try to get as much as of it as you can because that will define you as a as a person that will define your relationship with japan in my case it's uh you know, it probably sounds too uh, <laughs> um, too boring, but I like archives. I'm I, I'm crazy about finding something that few people had seen before. Uh, I finding a, a window or a glimpse of the past that that I can use as a building block in in, in telling a story and. And, and various people will have various things. People, some people will love Japanese cinema, and uh, some people will love anime. Some people will like to read Japanese novels, Murakami novels, or others. Um, and I would say, if you're going to be a researcher or someone who works with Japan, um, does research, writes about Japan, find something that makes you the person on that. But even if you're not going to write or, or do research, I think the best way to approach it would be to to ensure that you're not doing it just for work, you're not doing it just for uh, practical reasons, that you're also enjoying it. And the best way to do that is uh, finding something that you really, really feel that makes you a better person. In enriches you and gives you experiences that nothing else can. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely spot on. Well, I know you've got a talk to give shortly uh, next door, so we'll probably wrap it up there. Um, thank you again for that incredibly insightful interview. Um, it's fascinating to hear about your academic journey so far. Um, thank you. So <clears throat> just before we, we finish then, are there any upcoming projects or um, uh, publications that you'd like to mention? I'm sure plenty of uh, people listening would have found your research uh, absolutely fascinating uh, if they want to read more uh, or get uh, to know more have you got anything 
Yes, I'm currently writing uh, the chapter on Japanese Empire for the forthcoming uh, Cambridge History of Nations and Nationalism. Mm-hmm. I don't have a timeline. I don't know how long it will take, but that's one thing I'm currently working on and finding very um, inspiring and enlightening, uh, especially because when we say empire in this country, you know what empire we talk about. And bringing the Japanese empire into the mix is what I want to do, so that it is another uh, example or another case of um, case in history that, that we can use in, in, in trying to understand the world that we live in. Um, and I have finished my manuscript, which is based on my PhD, which will be the um, history of the Siberian internment in English, a comprehensive history which looks at both the Japanese experiences in the Soviet Union, but also after they came back to Japan and tried to reintegrate into the uh, post-war Cold War society. It's titled 11 Winters of Discontent. Um, it's in the press now, in the uh, undergoing uh, the... the uh, initial reviews with, with with the Harvard University Press, so it should be out next year. And uh, I haven't really started anything very big or very uh, new yet, but I'm, I'm on the way and on the way there, and I've, uh, every time I go to Japan I try to use the archives and the, all the resources to uh, build something new, to tell another story, so, uh, well, hopefully it won't be too long before I find um, the next project. Brilliant. Uh, well, I look forward to reading those when they're released. And for those of you who haven't uh, read any of Dr. Mumanov's work, I highly recommend you go and check out his fascinating research. Um, so, Dr. Shazad Mumanov, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to record this interview today. And I look forward to listening to your talk shortly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. For updates on future interviews, please follow us on Twitter at Voices in JS and on Instagram at Voices in Japanese Studies. Until next time, goodbye.